Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Well, welcome to this sort of news update. We're going to do this in two parts. So I'm going to just go through um, the contract changes that have just been announced and introduced. And then um, very kindly, Susie Caesar, um, who I'll introduce a bit later, is going to have a discussion with me about the new appraisal process. And hopefully we'll be able to clarify a number of questions that you may have about that. So, um, as you know, we um, had a contract introduced at the beginning of April and things were rather overshadowed with a certain thing called COVID-19, which has um, put a lot of things um, into a different perspective, uh, not least in general practice. Could I have the next slide, please? So, you know, we were asked early on um, if we could re-divert uh, all our efforts really to managing the challenge with the pandemic and look at COVID. So we moved to pr providing hot and cold sites. We were given some income protection and we were asked that we could stop doing many routine things while we focused on the real threat of the pandemic. As time has gone on, that has changed slightly, that the levels of COVID are relatively low locally. Um, and we're now being asked that restoration and recovery is a major stream of work trying to get services up and running. That's um, not only general practice, but community and hospital. So to build the backlog um, or to cope with the backlog that's happened in terms of um, non-COVID illness, but also things like screening uh, and other services. And that's a major challenge for hospitals who've got prolonged waiting lists, um, access to diagnostics, etc. So I'll talk a bit more about that uh, as we go forward. So as we reach this time in the year, so our contract was guaranteed to protect us until the beginning of October. And then there's been an announcement about, so what do we expect going forward? Because clearly COVID hasn't gone away. We're seeing a rise in the number of people being tested. Fortunately, currently uh, in our local hospitals, we're not seeing an increase in number of admissions, people going to critical care, to ITU and being ventilated. And although we're seeing uh, increased numbers of people being tested positive. Clearly, with the challenge with access to testing, there are probably a significant number of people in our community with COVID who haven't been tested or tested positive at this point in time. It does appear that most of these people, or a significant proportion, are in the younger population who don't appear to have the significant impact of COVID that others do. So the um, Last week, we had an announcement, which is what would happen to Quaff going forward? You know, was it going to be totally protected or were there other things that were going to be introduced? So essentially, what it's said is that they're looking to protect practice income. But what they also want is to allow practices to have um, capacity freed up to focus on some new priorities. And what they're saying, if you look at what we've learned over the last few months with COVID, that those who live in um, deprived populations, those who have long-term conditions, and certain ethnic minorities are disproportionately affected. So what we're being asked to do is focus a degree of our services and care on the most vulnerable and those disproportionately affected. So if you look at that, it's saying they're looking at the people live in the most 20% of the deprived areas in the country. People with long-term conditions, but particularly those who are poorly controlled, 
they are the ones ones that will have the worst outlook if they catch COVID. Not only potentially getting long COVID, which is the condition now being described of people who don't recover quickly from the acute phase of the COVID infection, but get long-term complications. But also, sadly, they're the people that are at a higher risk of dying from COVID. Also, those people who miss their annual reviews, and you will know in your surgery that there are people who miss their annual reviews regularly. They're the hard-to-reach group. But again, they are the ones who are disproportionately affected. Some of those because they've got long-term conditions which are not very well controlled, some because they don't take their medication properly, and some because they're getting complications of their long-term condition because they're not monitored properly. I've talked about certain ethnic groups. We all know about the elderly. You know, if you look at children, people under 40, people 40 to 65, and people over 65, you see a significant difference in how COVID affects those groups. And that's why we're seeing a degree of complacency in younger people who don't really see it as an illness that threatens them, but has a major impact on their communities. Also, there are some modifiable risk factors. So we know people who smoke and get chronic lung disease and the obese are also adversely affected with COVID. So when you look at it, those are all areas where we're being asked to focus more of our efforts rather than chasing a cholesterol in a 90-year-old who's got cardiovascular disease, because that will make very little difference to their um, outcome in terms of their health. Next slide, please. So if you look at Quaff Point, so this year, what they, what they are essentially doing is flu and cervical screening are really critical. I'll talk a bit more about the flu campaign, but also we've got to re-establish the cervical screening program and catch up with the ones that were missed in those months when we were locked down with COVID. So essentially they've doubled the points allocated to those two areas within Quaff. So that's now worth 58 points. The disease registers are quite important in terms of organizing management because although Quaff may essentially be protected this year, that doesn't mean people with long-term conditions don't need some ongoing managing and monitoring. So maintaining the disease register, those points remain at 81 points. The QI indicators, quality, the quality improvement indicators, I will talk in more detail about in a bit, and that's the early diagnosis of cancer and also the um, learning disabilities um, health checks. There is also 310 points, so that's a lot of the disease management ones which are protected, so practices will get those 310 points um, if they sign up to looking at um, providing enhanced care to the vulnerable, etc. So when you look at it, the total quaff points available this year are 567, which is exactly the same points as last year. It's just that we have those protected points and we've got double points in flu and cervical screening. And those points have been taken from uh, some of the uh, clinical areas where the protected quaff points were. Next slide, please. So the priorities for practices, which I'm sure most practices are already doing, one is to re-establish screening. So high priority, cervical screening, the catch-up, plus the people who are due to have their routine screening. The early diagnosis of cancer, um, particularly focused on the referrals in, the two-week waits, the new rapid diagnostic services, and how you benchmark those referrals against your colleagues, and something called NG12, the 
criteria for which we should be referring people in if we suspect they've got cancer. And there's a strong emphasis on safety netting. The learning disabilities, I um, will talk a bit about the health checks, but also about flu vaccination. And clearly there is a major issue about access and you will have seen some of the news coverage um, earlier on in the week, which again, I will talk about. But if you look at the access, it's also reflecting the new ways of working and how we inform our patients about this. Next slide, please. So, you know, if you look at um, general practice, uh, I would argue general practice has done a fantastic job over the last four or five months. We face the pandemic and the challenges with it. We transformed rat rapidly and uh, refined our services to meet the, the needs of the pandemic and the needs of our patients. We moved within a space of days to total triage, remote working, using video consultations, went from uh, certainly across our area less than 10% to nearly 90%. We created hot and cold sites, practices collaborated together. We had all the challenges with have we got the right PPE, what do we need? and everybody will realize the challenges with trying to see patients when it's appropriate to see them with PPE on. We're then given a massive list of shielded patients who we had to go through and look at how we protected them and offer services um, that meant they kept safe during this period. And then we saw as many deaths occurring in care homes as were occurring in the community and hospitals. So we had to rapidly change the way we deliver care into care homes with a lead GP, with um, doing ward rounds, with doing weekly contacts. In some areas, we moved to having care homes based on all the residents with a single practice so we could provide better and more organized care. And when we look now where we are in um, September, we've seen, we're now beginning to see a resurgence of COVID-19. At the same time, we're restoring screening and immunization. We're managing the non-COVID patients and picking up those patients who may not have come to see us beforehand because they were either too frightened of COVID or actually declined care because they didn't want to go to hospital because of the risks. We're being asked to take on um, more in terms of the long-term management condition, looking at those patients who we may have normally looked at their care over the first three or four months of the year, but haven't been able to because of our focus on managing COVID. We're also being asked to mass vaccinate for influenza. So normally we vaccinate about 15 million people per year. This year, that's nearly 30 million people. So double the number of people who we'd normally vaccinate. But at the same time, we're gonna to have to do that using social distancing, using PPE, although it may just be face masks rather than the full-blown PPE. So we're not gonna be able to do those vaccination uh, of individuals as quickly. It'll take longer per person, but also we've got to vaccinate at least double the numbers. Then there's the cancer services. You know, we've got to look at ensuring those people who would be adversely affected by their cancer that may become life-threatening and how do we manage those properly? And then on the horizon is this, the, cancer, the um, COVID-19 vaccination that will come in. So, when we have the COVID-19 vaccination, there's gonna be a mass program to vaccinate the whole population. What that will mean, what that will entail, we've yet to find out. It's not gonna occur in the next week or perhaps even in the next month, but it is on the horizon with those vaccines in the final stages of their 
um, trials. So when you look at that, I would argue that general practice should be very proud of what it's done. And, you know, what we're seeing now is we are still having to triage people so that we get them into the right place, so that we don't have people turning up in a surgery who might have COVID and therefore pose a risk to the, the other patients who are coming to the surgery, our staff and the GPs. We need to manage those people properly. So it is really disappointing, and I know how angry and upset GPs have been earlier on this week when you saw the headlines of some of the papers. And um, on the left-hand side of this slide is the headlines in the Daily Telegraph, which relate to a letter written by NHS England, which was trying to remind practices about offering face-to-face. But the media have taken it as seeing that we are being warned that we must offer face-to-face and see patients face-to-face. I have to say the conversations I've had with um, many GPs is, uh, although video consultations has its place, doing uh, video consultations all the time has limitations, and many GPs want to do face-to-face, and all do face-to-face when it is clinically appropriate, not just because the patient wants it, but when it's safe to do, and there is advantage in seeing somebody face-to-face when you need to examine them, or there are signs that you might want to pick up by doing face-to-face. So I think the media attack on general practice is not only fair, it's unfounded, and actually really does not reflect the fantastic work that general practice has done and continues to do, and remains the foundation stone of the NHS. And repeatedly, I've said, and other people have said, if general practice fails, the NHS will fail. And I would argue with this, the reason the NHS has responded well to the challenge of COVID is because general practice has responded well, transformed and done everything it's been asked to do and more than that. So um, I think you can all be proud of what you've done and what you continue to do, but we're going to have a really challenging winter. So I think please don't be offended by what's been said. Um, I think they're inappropriate comments and uh, actually we need to move forward and make sure we protect ourselves, our staffs, and provide the service that our patients need. Can we go on to the next slide, please? (coughs) So we're now into what's called phase three. So these are the new challenges. So you can see the numbers of tests of COVID going up. What was it? 4,000 yesterday. So it's slowly rising. That graph looks quite worrying. So there may be a point of time in the not too distant future, we need to create some hot sites again. Also, we're seeing quite a lot of GPs and practice staff having to self-isolate because children have got pyrexia, and it's not a surprise at this time of year that children will pick up infections, the vast majority of what uh, these are not COVID-related. But people are having to self-isolate until they can be tested, and you can all um, see the challenges with testing with the non-availability means that you can't be tested, find negative, and return to work you're having to isolate until we can get there. So we need the capacity for testing, and we need that testing to be readily available, particularly for GPs, their staff, and their families, so we can keep people in work, because if we don't have the workforce, we can't deliver the service. Clearly, screening and immunizations need to continue. We can't stop them, but if we get increasing levels of active COVID in the community, we're gonna have to find a way of delivering that that's safe and effective. We can't, we can't ignore long-term conditions. We've got to continue managing them. But I think many practices have already moved to managing these remotely wherever possible. 
and actually moving to self-management. If we look to routine and urgent non-COVID work, um, I've repeatedly talked about cancer and I'll give you some data about that in a minute. So we need to continue doing total triage, video consultations, remote consultations, and face-to-face -face with social distancing and PPE where it's relevant and that needs to be controlled by the practice, providing access to patients, practices aren't closed or locked up. What they're trying to do is provide safe services to patients. Um, hospital waiting lists, um, a hot topic for discussion. Um, our view as an LMC is that yes, we recognize that hospitals have got long waiting lists. There are access to diagnostics, but general practice is now up and working at a level that it would normally do at winter time. This isn't summer working where we've got a bit of slack. So hospitals cannot say to general practice, well, could you relook at all our people on our waiting list and could you go through them and see who are still needed? Or by the way, we can't see people face to face, so we'll write to you and ask you to do all the blood tests um, and diagnostics and then write to us when you've done it. We need to work with our hospital colleagues. They've got challenges as we've, and we've got challenges. And part of meeting those challenges is that the system needs to put in additional capacity to address those factors, not just put, push work from secondary to primary care. The other bit is if we're going to maintain um, services and actually improve, community health services and mental health services need to be invested in as well as general practice so we can really develop that community-based model so we become less, less reliant on our hospital-based colleagues. Next slide, please. So if I go back to Quaff, so essentially a summary of the changes are for flu, the flu vaccination indicators remain in CHD, COPD, stroke and TIAs and diabetes. So you'll remember in those list of Quaff indicators, the flu ones always come at the end. So these are not only people over 65, but the under 65 at, at risk. So those quaff points are doubled. The two cervical screening indicators are looking at the two different age groups. Those have been doubled. And I've talked about the quaff associated with managing the disease registers. There are eight quaff indicators that re relate to optimal prescribing of medication, which I'll talk about shortly. And their points remain in there. So that's medication which helps to manage long-term conditions. Uh, we talked about quality improvement um, indicators, and I'll talk about that. And I've also talked about the 310 points based on your income protection, looking at historical practice performance, but also subject to practices agreeing to the QOF um, population stratification and working with the commissioners. So next slide, please. So if you just take, um, I mean, I seem to be repeating myself, but um, it is worth doing about the cervical screening and there's 29 additional points allocated to this, these indicators. If you take flu, just to be really clear, so practices will receive a, an item of service fee for each flu vaccination they deliver, plus a dispensing fee if they've bought in the flu vaccination plus a discount if they've negotiated a discount with the suppliers. There are 36 quaff points that are allocated to flu. And also within your primary care network, the impact and investment fund, which is essentially like a quaff for your PCN, 
there is one of the indicators which targets the uh, 65 and overs, which is looking for um, practices to get over 70% and hopefully up to 77% of those people over 65. Normally in Wessex, we, we're quite good about getting the elderly patients. So we normally will score somewhere between 72 and 74% in an average year. Um, but also remembering that actually the under 65s and the at-risk under 65, we barely get over 50%. And that's, that's a major priority for this year. Next slides, please. If you look at the eight prescribing indicators, we will make the slides available afterwards on our website. But if you look at these, this is 44 points. And this is work that practices have done on an ongoing basis. And I'm sure you've got searches within your practice that you run. So it's particularly looking, for example, the people with AF to check they're on anticoagulation or people with CHD that they're on an antiplatelet agent, people with heart failure um, with left ventricular systolic dysfunction that they're on an ACE or an ARB, um, people with heart failure again um, who are on a beta blocker that's licensed for heart failure, people with a non-hemorrhagic stroke that they're on an antiplatelet agent, uh, people with um, diabetes who have microalbuminuria or nephropathy, are treated with an ACE or an ARB. Uh, diabetics uh, over 40, um, looking at those who should be on a statin. And finally, the patients with diabetes and cardiovascular disease who are also treated with a statin. So those are things which I think practices are well used to doing. Uh, and I'm sure many of you use, are using your new clinical pharmacist to help you in those areas. Could I have the next slide, please? So the early diagnosis of cancer. So this was one of the quality improvement indicators. And initially, the specification was published, and there were a number of things you were going to be required to do. Now, both this and the uh, learning disability indicators have been modified somewhat. So some of the absolute targets have been taken out. But um, one would argue these are two really important areas for your population. So if you look at the early diagnosis of um, cancer, this is one of the three service specifications uh, within the PCN DES, but it is also one of the quality indicators. So if you look at the QOF bit, what they're asking you to do is demonstrate continuous quality improvement uh, and look at the activity that's focused on early diagnosis of cancer, uh, and that's worth 27 points and then participation in network activity to share and discuss these improvements focusing on the early diagnosis of cancer. And the requirement is that there's two peer-to-peer -peer review meetings. Now, these can be done using Zoom and done within your um, PCN network. Also, just to remember that the Cancer Alliances are there to support um, practices, and the Cancer Alliances will be letting you know if they haven't done already, or you can contact the Cancer Alliance. And there are a number of Macmillan GPs and other GPs working with the Cancer Alliance who will help and support your PCN and practice. Next slide, please. So when you look at the early diagnosis of cancer, what are we trying to do? We're trying to restore um, cervical screening services. We're looking to improve screening uptake into private areas. So you know, in some areas, uh, in the more affluent areas, you'll find that screening uptake is relatively good. Um, it still could be better. 
You know, if you look at bowel screening or breast screening, we hit 70, 75%. But in some areas, that uptake is less than 50%. And that may be for many reasons. It may be access to services. It may be a language problem. It may be just in deprived areas. There is less engagement in organized systems. So, you know, one of the health inequalities this year is to try and really look at some of those screening services and increase the uptake. Um, and I think if you look at it, we can do uh, stuff at a system level, we can do it in a CCG level, but the people that know their patients best are practices and the PCNs. So working together with commissioners and others, we hope that we could increase the screening uptake. I mean, practices can look at their suspected cancer rates and see whether you're in line with what you would expect. You know, this looks at referral rates for two weeks, um, also some of the common cancers. The other bit is to ensure you've got uh, safety netting in place. If you look at Cancer Research UK or Macmillan, both of them have got some really excellent tools which you can use within your practice, which will support safety netting. So... It isn't a case, and I'm sure many practices, you know, you refer somebody on a two-week pathway, you can just forget about it. It is about knowing the patients you've referred. Maybe somebody you're worried about, you've referred them for an investigation, rather than just say, come back and see me when it's done. We know some patients don't come back for some strange reason. So it's having some safety netting in place and recording that um, in, the, in the records. Many practices use um, tools such as Arden's, templates which in some of the cancer referral templates there are safety netting information advice in that also um, some people may through covid have been declined to be referred because they're worried about the risk or their own concerns and actually how will you manage those so if you're worried they've got cancer but won't be referred is there something that you've told them to do that you can record that also, when you're referred on an urgent care pathway and with the general challenges, um, have you got any information that might have been downgraded, changed or whatever? So if you look at early diagnosis of cancer, it's about screening, it's about referrals, it's about safety netting. Next slide, please. So if you look at the advice that's gone out, there's a reporting template and this is the reporting template that's happened, that's, that's detailed there, which practices are going to need to report on on the end of the year. So I won't go through all of those, but essentially it covers the areas I've been talking about. So it's looking about reporting back um, so that people are assured and reassured what is going on at practice level. Um, we do, can you just go to the next slide? No, can you go back again? So just to give you some local figures, we are the best performing area in the country in terms of referrals. Um, when we went into COVID, the number of referrals dropped um, from a benchmark of the sort of pre-COVID referral levels to about 30%, which is quite worrying. Although the threshold would be 3% of people referred would expect to have cancer, we have a pickup rate that's a bit higher than that. But those... Um, drop in referrals mean that there may be patients who are not being referred. We um, agreed to try and get that back up to pre-COVID levels. And across Wessex, we're up at about 95 to 96%, which is the highest in the country. So, you know, my um, message to you all is if you've got people who you think have got cancer, 
please don't delay in referring them using the nice guidelines ng12 um, the all the trusts are reporting that they are managing the cancer referrals they've got good access to chemotherapy radiotherapy and surgery so um, there's no reason why we can't refer and get those people in to get treatment appropriately and in a fashion uh, next slide please so let's move on to learning disability so question is why is this so important because if you look at it the learning disabilities and these annual health reviews is not only one of the service specifications in the PCN DES, but it also comes as a DES that goes to practices, and it's also part of the impact fund. Well, if you look at people with learning disabilities, um, evidence um, is irrefutable that they suffer poorer physical and mental health than other people. And on average, if you look at them as a group, they die 16 to 20 years earlier than the general population. And if you break, break that down by age um, or by the extent of their learning disability, so if we just look at learning disability, mild learning disability, the average um, age of death um, is 62, moderate it's 63, quite why um, you survive slightly longer with moderate disability than mild, I'm not quite so sure, but with severe it's 57, and if you've got really profound and multiple learning disabilities, then the average age of death is 40. There's been quite a lot of research done over the last four or five years, the Ledley uh, research, which looks at learning disability deaths. And the evidence suggests that in about 38% of their deaths, people with learning disabilities have avoidable causes of their death. So that's why it's so important and is really highlighted in this year's QOF and also in the DESIS. Uh, next slide, please. So for learning disabilities, um, practices are funded uh, for uh, doing the annual health check, which can be done remotely now, um, which is 144 pounds per completed health checks. In some practices, they achieve over 90% and some nearer 100%. And in some uh, areas, it's less than 50%. You know, clearly this is not only good for patients, uh, but it actually is financially beneficial for practices. Some practices have got really good um, pharmacists and nurses who are delivering the service. If you go into QOF and the QI part of it, there's 37 points uh, for doing that, and that's worth about £7,000 for the average practice of 8,000 patients. And now in the impact um, fund of the uh, PCN um, DES, there's uh, £5,000 for the average PCN for 44,000 patients, depending on the level that's achieved. Next slide, please. So to do the um, quality improvement activity, what they're looking to demonstrate continuous improvement focused on the care of patients with learning disabilities, that's worth 27 points. And the 10 points is uh, participation in network activity to share and discuss learning uh, from the focus care for these, uh, this group, particularly looking at flu vaccination this year. Um, and again, that's two peer-to-peer -peer review meetings, which can be done over Zoom and can be done at network level. Next slide, please. So when you look at the annual health check, what they're trying to achieve in this is to reduce morbidity and mortality, to optimise the health. So flu vaccination, looking at screening, particularly the three breast, cervical and bowel, recognizing that there may be some uh, patients with very severe learning disabilities who can't participate in these programs 
for very good reasons where um, it may be considered an assault to do it um, because they won't understand what you're doing. And it's a balance between the benefits versus the risks. And there are quite a lot of um, independent advocacy uh, routes you can do, go down with the family or the carers for these people to make that judgment. Um, and there, is, there are quite a lot of information uh, literature available if you go via the LMC website or through your learning disability community provider to provide really good information that's uh, written in a way with pictures and descriptions which people with learning disabilities find helpful. There's also the STOMP um, initiative which is looking at stopping unnecessary medication which again many practices have been involved in for some years whereas with some of the behavioural problems in the past, um, the advice has been to increase medication and control behaviour that way. And what we're really looking to do is to stop that and have a much more behavioural approach to that and working much more closely with our learning stability teams. Next slide, please. So when you look at learning stabilities, you know, the question is, is your um, disease register accurate? Do you have a plan for the annual health checks? and managing those individuals with their long-term conditions. And actually, have you had a DNA CPR discussion with uh, family, with carers, with the individuals where that's appropriate? Um, and how are you going to maximize the uptake of flu vaccination? And in some practices, they try and coordinate the annual health checks with the flu vaccination. The other bit, which I'm sure you're all very well aware of, is the re reasonable adjustments that came in in the Equality Act. So if people are blind, deaf, have um, understanding which is difficult, which some people with learning disabilities have, have you made adjustments for that and are they reasonable and have you recorded those? Next slide, please. So again, when you go into the QOF, there is a reporting template, which again has got a short number of questions, which really covers the areas that I've described. Doesn't need um, an essay in each one, it just needs fairly simple descriptions of what you've done as a practice or what you've done working together with your neighboring practices at a PCN level. Uh, next slide, please. Um, income protection, I've talked about the 310 points. Uh, you, you're agreeing to look at the risk stratification and by the end of Nova November, you will identify and prioritize where, where are your high risks in your practice across your PCN. And those areas I've described before about vulnerable, long-term conditions, poorly controlled, and the missing reviews. You're also being asked to refer for weight management because of the focus on obesity. And also what you're being asked to do is keep your QOF alerts alive. So when patients come in, it's not a case of you'll be earning income or losing income on QOF uh, alerts, but it'll just keep you mindful of what you might or might not need to do. Next slide, please. Um, there are some new indicators which are very clinically focused, and I'm not going to spend any time going through these. They are on the slide set. So if you just quickly go through them, please. So go the first one. So there's a bit about, uh, next slide, please. So there's a bit about heart failure and how you manage that um, and how you use um, BNP to um, manage that and make the diagnosis. Next slide, please. And then there's a bit about how you use the appropriate medication. Next slide. And then there's a bit of a modification because of the assessment of it. And if you get patients coming into your practice who may not have been properly investigated elsewhere, or that investigation hasn't been recorded, that you don't lose out moving forward. Next slide. 
Um, and there's a bit about asthma in the recording. Remember, at the moment, spirometry, um, there is some dispute nationally as to whether it is an aerosol-generating procedure. Health uh, health, uh, sorry, Public Health England has said it's not. The British Thoracic Society and the Royal Colleges haven't agreed with that. So at the moment, we're sitting a bit in limbo uh, where we're trying to get um, absolute clar clarification um, because we can't deal with ambiguity on that. But there is a let out clause in terms of doing uh, reversibility um, in terms of asthma and COPD. Next slide, please. And move on again. Um, and again, a COPD, again, there is um, the, the new indicator from April was looking at how you use spirometry or looking at how people who join your practice, where they might not have those recorded, what you might need to do and how you would catch up. Next slide, please. And again, and again. Right, so um, I've now come to the end, hopefully have given you um, an overview of what's happening in terms of quaff and in terms of practice protection. There is still more information to come, which is we're still pushing quite hard on. So what's going to happen over the winter? Practices are going to have additional expense. They're going to need to increase their capacity to be able to manage the new presentations of COVID. So we still haven't bottomed out what this national GP COVID fund is, is all about and whether it's going to come or whether it isn't going to come. We're also looking at income protection. So you'll be aware that the DESIs and local contracts were guaranteed till the end of July. Um, one or two areas, Dorset and BSW, I think, have agreed to uh, protect practice income and secure that going forward. But we're also looking at that in Hampshire. So there are still things which we are working and working very hard on all your behalf to make sure that you're given not only the protection, but the space to be able to deliver the care that you need to do um, in a really challenging environment going forward. So I'll stop there um, and um, stop talking and welcome uh, Susie Caesar, who um, is a GP in Dorset. She's also the appraisal lead for Wessex. She's also the appraisal lead from the Royal College of GPs and also is leading on the work nationally in the Academy of Royal Colleges about the new appraisal system. So Susie, welcome. I'm going to ask you a number of very easy questions and I will do less talking and you'll do more talking, hopefully. So my first question is, so we're restarting appraisals in October um, and people may have mixed views, but um, essentially we're going to have six months. So does that mean that everybody has got to have their appraisal for 2020-21 in the next six months? Or how is that going to work? And I'll come on to what the new appraisal system is. But let's first of all explore the what does it mean? Okay, so practicalities first. When the pandemic hit, it was really appropriate to free up clinical time to uh, stop people doing appraisal, revalidation, and associated administrative activities like compiling your portfolio or recording your CPD or your quality improvement or, or doing feedback surveys. So we know that from the uh, end of March, people stopped doing anything towards their appraisal revalidation. And the GMC took a very pragmatic view and they moved everybody's revalidation dates forwards by 12 months so that people who were in that last year 
and expecting to come to an appraisal between April and September that would be the last one before their revalidation date have found that their revalidation date's been moved forward by 12 months, so they've got a whole extra year. At the same time, Steve Powers, as the medical director for NHS England, recommended that appraisals be suspended. And for pretty much all doctors in the NHS, appraisals have been suspended until the end of September. And then on the 2nd of September, the letter came out saying they were being restarted. If your appraisal was due between April and September, in the vast majority of cases, um, that's it. You've been given already an approved missed appraisal due to COVID, and you will just have your normal appraisal in the normal way between April and September next year. There are a very few people who may have very strong reasons for wanting to have an appraisal sooner. If you had previously already had an approved missed appraisal because you're on maternity leave, you happen to be back now, but you're planning another period of maternity leave, you might really want to have an appraisal in this year and individual cases will be looked at on their merits. But on the whole, if your appraisal was due between April and September, don't worry about it. You will eventually have one of these new model of appraisals in April to September 21-22. So the uh, announcement came out on the 2nd of September that appraisals would be restarted from the 1st of October. There is a lot of flexibility in the restart and we have to recognise we don't know what's going to happen with a second surge of the pandemic. We don't know what's going to happen in individual practices. So A, what we are reintroducing is not appraisal as you knew it previously and B, what we're introducing will be flexible to local circumstances with a lot of opportunities to um, negotiate both with your appraiser what's professionally appropriate for the two of you but also if necessary with your RO to say this month is just impossible for our locality because. Okay, go on, sorry I'll stop you mid-flow. No, that's fine, I'd rather have another question please. Okay, so let's, let's look forward. So we've been told there's this new appraisal system. So one of the challenges before has been, or, or one of the complaints for a GP is, you know, I've got to collect 50 hours. I need to write all this reflection. And, you know, there's, there's other things that go in and I'm filling this great long form in. But we've got a, what's been described as a new appraisal system going forward that's less burdensome and probably moves back more to the sort of summative type supportive approach rather than um, I think in some areas of the country it was seen as being much more formative whereas I think in our area um, I, I've seen appraisals always been quite supportive of general practice so um, would you like to describe what what's going to be different going forward in appraisals? In recognition of the impact that the pandemic has had on every single doctor primary care, secondary care, across all four nations. The aim was to introduce something that recognised the professionalism that doctors have displayed in transforming their practices, recognised that everybody has done hours and hours of CPD keeping up to date just with how to handle a pandemic, done reams of quality improvement activities or transformation act and system redesign activities, even if sometimes we feel the quality has not been what we would have wanted it to be, um, and therefore 
asking people to produce written documentation in advance of their appraisal to demonstrate things that we knew they had already done was inappropriate. So the burden of the pre-appraisal documentation has been reduced as far as we felt that it safely could be within the flexibility already allowed by the GMC. So this appraisal still qualifies as an annual appraisal for revalidation. It fits within the GMC standards of demonstrating your continued competence. But the preparation now is reduced to a very short, focused reflection on the impact of the pandemic, particularly on your health and well-being, um, but also uh, very much on your ability to provide the care that you want to provide for your patients. And the testing, and I have to say a huge shout out and thank you to appraisers in Wessex, who were one of the groups who contributed to the pilot. In the testing, the mean time taken to fill in the template was 32 minutes, and the vast majority of doctors took less time than that. The median and the mode were 27 minutes. So in terms of burden of preparation, the written documented reflection now should take most doctors less than half an hour. Which is good news, because I've talked to GPs before who've sadly taken two weeks holiday to because they haven't been collecting information during the year so they've taken two weeks off to put all their appraisal information together which you know is sad in a way but also makes it devalues the process and I think uh, many GPs have valued that one-to-one discussion more than necessarily you know collecting lots of bits of paper to show somebody okay so that 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 sounds um really good you've talked about reflecting on COVID and the experience we've got. And we know that that's had a, quite an impact on GPs and their well-being potentially. Um, so that's, that's useful to know. In terms of the new appraisal system, which you've been um, instrumental in um, designing and driving, what happens after COVID? So, you know, if we all, if we all look forward positively that whether, um, you know, COVID vaccine comes in or whatever we do, that we go into 2021, 22, and we're back to, uh, well, we won't be whatever normal is. It won't be normal as we knew it, but the new, the new world as it might be. Will appraisal just go back to where it was before, or are we going to learn from this and continue in the way that you and others have designed the service or the, or the process, should I say? So I think we have to see this year as unique because we know that people have not been able to collect any supporting information through lockdown and through the majority of the pandemic. Um, But I don't think there will be any going backward either. All the key players, the GMC, the BMA, all the medical royal colleges and faculties have all seen this as an opportunity to rebalance some of the things that have perhaps got a little bit over-engineered Uh, in the way that the previous appraisal system was implemented. We have to look at any change we ever make and see whether that change is an improvement. And so the evaluation of Medical Appraisal 2020 is going to be absolutely key to what happens next. And we will be comparing our evaluation from this year with feedback that people have given in previous years, but we will also be asking some new questions to see which bits of the change are valuable, which bits make a difference to doctors, and actually 
which bits people find supportive and helpful for their own personal development. Um, my big plea, I suppose, if I can use this platform for that, is to ask everybody, please, after your appraisal, fill in your post-appraisal feedback form. We need this evaluation more than ever to know what's good and what's worth keeping. I mean, as you know, as an LMC, we work quite closely with you over the years from actually the implementation of appraisals. And I think the appraisal system has worked well in Wessex and has been supportive of GPs. So personally, I'm pleased that you're um, at the forefront of this nationally and, um, you know, we'll uh, feed back as much as you can and, and hopefully we'll keep all the positive things that are there, like the reduced burden on individuals and the more supportive nature. Um, a couple of other questions. So, so the, if you've missed an appraisal this year for very good reasons, you said that's not going to change your revalidation. Um, it, you might only have four appraisals in a revalidation because there's a fallow year, but that, that isn't going to matter. You don't actually have to have any particular number of appraisals in your revalidation cycle to revalidate successfully. You have to engage with the appraisal process. And if that means explaining that you're on maternity leave and having an approved missed appraisal, period of sick leave and, and having an approved missed appraisal, all you need to do to revalidate is to demonstrate your continued competence at what you do. And you can do that in one or two appraisals. Um, so the important thing I think is to think of this from a patient point of view and to think as patients, all of us want to know that the doctor in front of us is safe and has kept up to date and fit to practice. As doctors, we all want to be able to answer that little imposter voice on our shoulders saying, oh, you should have failed finals, you know, they'll catch you out one day. And the same things that keep us safe, that little voice on our shoulders. I thought I was the only one that had that voice. Can also be our biggest nightmare. So by having a confidential safe space to talk with a trained colleague once a year and just benchmark your practice and think and plan about what you want to do next, you can both calm down that little voice on your shoulder and say, yes, actually, I am, what I'm doing is good enough. What I'm doing actually, wow, haven't I done a lot that I hadn't even recognized because it was all in the melee of life. Um, and particularly this year, we are worried that an awful lot of doctors have been adversely impacted by the pandemic. And we know that doctors are the worst at finding support for themselves sometimes when they need it most. And so your appraisers will also be armed with a great long checklist of resources um, to signpost people to if people need ongoing help after their appraisal. So if, if you took the scenario of somebody whose um, appraisal was due in the first half of the year, they then go on maternity leave at the end of the year. So they haven't had an appraisal this year. They won't have an appraisal next year because they're on maternity leave. They won't be adversely affected by it because you no. don't need... Yeah. Okay, that's, that's helpful to know. I know it's a question I'm sure you've been asked before because uh, I know it's um, a concern that uh, people have uh, expressed to us. An approved missed appraisal is indication that you have engaged appropriately with the appraisal system. The fact that you couldn't have one isn't a sign of non-engagement. Non-engagement is the people that we can't contact, we can't find uh, and, and don't communicate back to us about organising their appraisals. 
And uh, sometimes that's because they've emigrated to Australia and just forgotten to give us the details. <laughs> yeah. Okay, a technical question. I mean, I think most of our GPs would probably use 14 fish and clarity, probably the vast majority. Um, they've got the option to keep their current stuff on the old format or move to a new format. What, what's your advice of what they should be doing? So I have done the walkthrough of both the 14 fish and the clarity uh, toolkits. Fortunately, the toolkit providers have been completely behind us and supported us in making these changes to medical appraisal. And um, I would not recommend anybody stay on their old version. Um, both toolkits have sorted it out so that anything you had already entered, particularly if you'd entered it pre-COVID, gets pulled through into the new version. So you haven't lost anything, but then the prompts for the very brief focus self-reflection are built into the new version very neatly for you. So you can do them online rather than having to fill in the template from the Academy of Medical Royal College's website and attach it to the old version. So it's just much smoother and slicker and cleaner and more streamlined in, in the versions where they have built it in. Okay, thank you very much. Is there anything else you want to say, Susie, before we answer a couple of questions? Um, I am really proud of the way that our doctors and our appraisers have responded to this offer of a supportive, compassionate appraisal. And I hope that we can continue to deliver the best of what our appraisals have always done, but in a, a format that supports it to a greater extent. Okay, thank you very much. Um, if you can stay with us for five minutes, um, we'll have a look at the questions. Gareth, do you want to come uh, online as such, if you're still there? Yeah, there you go. Right. Um, so let's, let's go through some of the questions. Um, so the income protection, I mean, you and I have discussed this at length, seems quite limited overall, especially with the introduction of the new indicators. Um, I'm, I'm not sure the new indicators are really that onerous, uh, but recognize the QI ones. Uh, may. So what's your view of the income protection that's being offered at the moment? Well, I think I think there's been so much uncertainty about the COVID fund. It's confused things. I mean, I think the, there are income protection in the in the in the contract. We've done some negotiation around protecting the income from some of the uh, um, enhanced services commissioned by CCGs and by local and by some of the local councils. So we're working on that because obviously, as we move to potentially a second wave of COVID, we're not going to hit activity targets. And it's making the system understand that, that if we're, if we're truly going to be doing other work, we've got to have our income protected in the same way that hospitals are having their income protected. They're not, they're not doing their, their, the amount of operations that they've been commissioned for, and yet I don't hear talk about hospitals losing income. Same principle's got to apply to general practice. I don't think we're there yet in the negotiation, but it's got to happen. Okay. Um, will income protection be adjusted for list size and prevalence changes? Now, my understanding reading the documentation is there will be an adjustment for list size um, and also for prevalence. What's, what's your reading of it? Yeah, that's my view too. I, th I think that's my understanding. Yeah. Um, is that the point point achievement on points is is protected um and then it, i assume that it would be the same adjustments 
I'm always slightly wary answering a, a, a question about Quaff from Gavin, who uh, is, <laughs> is more than an expert on it. Uh, that's my understanding, but, and, and obviously Gareth as well, but we will also double check that. Um, a, a question for Susie, really. The, there's always this confusion about appraisals versus CQC. So appraisal, uh, uh, the appraisal process gets blamed about um, mandatory training required in resuscitation, safeguarding, we've got to do X hours. Um, but my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that doesn't come through the appraisal process, that's the CQC. So appraisal says you should be engaged with things. It doesn't actually, you, you don't fail your appraisal because you haven't done X or Y. Is that... Am I correct or am I mistaken? No, so thank goodness you recognise that appraisal is not pass-fail. Appraisal is a supportive process designed to help doctors demonstrate their continued competence. If somebody is no longer competent, they will fall out of the appraisal process and be discovered by the clinical governance route or by significant events or by complaints or by mortality morbidity data in a hospital setting. So um, revalidation, your revalidation recommendation comes from two channels. One is about what the organization knows about you and your practice, and that's the governance side. And what you as an individual present about what you've done to keep up to date and fit up to practice, that's the appraisal side. And the appraisal side cannot do anything other than deal with what the individual brings to it. So it has to be the formative side. CQC is the governance body for organisations. So they then come in and check that practices or, or other healthcare provider organisations are working within appropriate parameters. And for GPs, we have the issue that we have to be on the performers list, which is an employer situation where there are tests of things like, can you speak English? Do you have a, a, a valid visa to practice in this country? as well as a valid UK license to practice. And on the performers list requirements, there are some employers requirements about mandatory training. Even this scenario this year, you do not have to have evidence of mandatory training. That's one of the other administrative things that it was suggested that people no longer needed to collect during the acute response to the emergency. But all of us probably kept up to date about the rising concerns about safeguarding issues in people in lockdown. All of us will have looked at the updates on basic life support and what you couldn't do if you didn't have PPE in terms of the mouth-to-mouth -mouth part of life support. So I think your appraiser may well ask you about those sorts of things, but it will be all on verbal reflection, not on documentation and not on proof. Okay, thank you. Um, can I just mention about uh, going back to the subject before about workload and workforce? So recognising that practices are really stretched with their workload, um, we really need to maximise the workforce. And part of that is we are keep pushing for the COVID fund over the winter to expand the number of staff working in general practice. So there are locums who are looking for work, there are GP returners, uh, there are others around who are happy to help practices out, but clearly practices need some resource to be able to do that. 
There is likely to be a small amount of resource to come and help practices with flu vaccine, vaccination above and beyond uh, what is going to come out in the list I said before, but it is a very small amount. It is not going to be enough to um, make a huge difference to practices. I'd also say when you look at um, one of my recent newsletters, there's a document about workforce, and I would strongly encourage people to sort of think about what is the new to partnership scheme? What can that do for you and your practice? The GP fellowships, um, we're working quite closely with um, the ICSs, the STPs and CCGs. Gareth's doing quite a lot of work in BSW. I'm working in Hampshire and we're doing some work in Wiltshire to make sure that's up and running. So those newly qualified um, GPs have an incentive to come and work in a substantive role. Um, also leading on for that is GP mentors, which is aimed at keeping people in practice, but using the wisdom and experience of GPs. Um, and the additional roles, there are huge sums of money being invested in these roles. And we recognize that there is an issue with supervision and uh, training for these people, but there's got to be a way forward, which we're trying to help with to make sure that those new members of staff can come in and take work off GPs and off practices and support practice managers who are key to all of this. So workforce is really important going forward and a, and a major issue for what we're looking uh, at. So we're coming to the end of our time. Um, I think we've answered uh, most of the questions. Um, there's two quick questions here. Um, the lack of funding for ongoing COVID-related activity um, people doing face-to-face. -face. I absolutely recognise that, Jenny, and I, I can assure you in each of our areas, it's what we're pushing on to try and make people understand that doing remote consultation by video is not quicker. It takes longer. You have to do more safety netting. You have to ask more questions. And sometimes you do all that and then you have to get them in as well. So absolutely recognise that. Um, and the final question was about additional PCN roles, limiting in, cap, in the caps and role, role types in the oncoming winter. Well, the caps are there and the roles are there to try so that we don't pinch all the paramedics out of the ambulance service and we can build up. But I, I recognize what you're saying. And I also recognize trying to get these people in post to help us over this winter is a real challenge with COVID, et cetera. I think Nigel, can I just come in on that? I mean, it seems to me we're talking about workforce and funding there is potential for a lot of money that sits in that scheme that is not going to be spent in general practice this current year. And, you know, we need the national negotiators to try to try to come to a position where we can keep some of that money in, in general practice. Agree entirely with you, Gareth, as you know, um, it would be a shame if that money is handed back to treasury because it sends all the wrong messages. Um, and the message is the workload is still enormous and getting bigger uh, and the workforce is still not sufficient to be able to manage all those. Yeah, quick um, bit of feedback for Susie as well is um, my appraisal date was in October and I did the COVID uh, template as in the 14 fish toolkit yesterday and it did indeed take me about half an hour and was very simple to do and once I'd done it, it all made sense as to the process. So um, I can just reassure the GPs who are going to have their appraisals that actually it is very straightforward. And if you use 14 fish, uh, it, your previous data transfers into the new template seamlessly and it's very easy to do. Thank you, Gareth. And uh, we'll send, Susie will send us the check later for that endorsement of the <laughs> new process. Um, can I... 
Susie for joining us and um, giving her valuable time and to give us her wisdom and expertise. And we um, hope to continue the close and productive working relationship we have between the LNC and the appraisal service and yourself with your national role as well. Uh, can I thank Gareth um, for joining us on the panel? Can I thank all of you for joining us? And can I thank um, the LNC staff for supporting and helping this webinar? Thank you very much and uh, hope you have a good rest of the day. Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. 